Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one is all about Britain's most dangerous prisoner. Thank you, Emma, for writing it. Isn't this the guy who's in, like, that super secure prison? And he kept, like, murdering other people in prisons. So they put him in, like, a glass box. Like, something straight out of Hannibal Lecter shit, And he just sits in this glass box all day. I feel like... I don't know if it, It's definitely come up in another uh, episode or video or something that I've made somewhere. And it was really intense. So this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, if you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. It's the Casual Criminalist. I'm your host, Simon. One of my writers, as I mentioned, Emma, she writes me a script. I've never read it before. That's the format. We're going to explore it together. It's why I am so ignorant at the beginning of all of these episodes and often afterwards, because ignorance is my base place. Let's get into it. The murder and torture of others is an inherently selfish act. Some murderers that we've covered so far have killed others out of greed, hatred to fulfill their sick fantasies, and sometimes simply because people stood in their way. I don't know. Murder's not always going to be 100% selfish. And I know, <laughs> for someone who runs a true crime show, and it's like, uh, the ignorance generally out there in the world is like, no, 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 there are serial killers who are like Dexter, and they kill for good. And 99.99% of the time, it's like, okay, so maybe they killed someone bad, but they did it because they like killing. And you look at the show Dexter, it's like, he doesn't do it mostly because he likes taking people out of the world. He does it mostly because he likes plunging a knife into someone's heart in a weird room wrapped in plastic. Did you guys watch that new Dexter show? It wasn't as good as the old Dexter show. And I don't, I don't even think I finished the season, which was a shame because I loved the original Dexter. That was a killer show. Uh, <laughs> um, but most killers are just doing it because they like killing. There's not really that many people out there who are like, you know, Batman or some but if he killed, because Batman doesn't kill. Or use guns, right? Which always struck me as weird. Just use a gun. Guns are really effective. So what would it take for someone to kill others simply for the sake of making the world a better place? I'm not talking about soldiers or snipers or the like. I'm talking a real-life Dexter here. A killer of killers. Kevin has already covered Pedro Rodriguez Filho, Brazil's claim to the role of Dexter, as we saw in that episode. It wasn't so much a case of him killing in order to do good, but rather a case of him taking revenge and then killing his fellow prisoners in order to feed his need to kill. Yeah, that was a classic example of... No, 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 he does kill bad people, but he also just loves killing. <laughs> but thanks to two of our viewers, namely Margaret Todd and Malediction Wolf, if that is your real name, today's episode is about Britain's candidate for the role of a Dexter killer, Robert John Maudsley, a serial killer who is also known as Blue Spoons, Hannibal the Cannibal, and Britain's most dangerous prisoner. I'm going to call it right at the top here and say that the reason that he kills is mostly because he likes killing. And to be fair, that can make him a Dexter killer if he just kills bad people, because as we already discussed, Dexter loves killing. He loves plunging that knife into people's chests in a weird room of plastic, as we already said. So maybe he can be a Dexter killer. The other one is always the genius killers, and it's always like, they're so dumb. <laughs> it's like, no, the genius killers, they're the ones who don't get caught, because they're geniuses. Almost as soon as I started doing my research on Robert Morsley, it became clear that Robert isn't your garden variety serial killer. There wasn't a series of murders that led to his capture. He didn't become infamous for gruesome ways in which he killed his victims. There wasn't a media frenzy when he was finally sentenced, and he had been forgotten by society until a psychiatrist named Dr. Bob Johnson stumbled across him during a prison tour in 1989. <laughs> 
what's Dr. Bob up to? He's like, yeah, no, no, no. Sometimes I just go to the prison and find the interesting ones and uh, deconstruct their minds. I guess that's useful work. I'm sorry, Dr. Bob. I don't know why I'm making fun. Also, anyone who's called Dr. Bob, I, I, I don't know why I called him Dr. Bob. It's just because it's a, on a line break here. So it looks like Dr. Bob and then Johnson's on the next line. But anyone who's like Dr. First Name, I'm always like, are you a real doctor? Because <laughs> it's not like you go to your real doctor. He's like, hi, I'm Dr. Bob. No, they're always like, I'm Dr. So-and-so, like surname. Because <laughs> it's a serious profession. Almost all of the information that is available on Robert John Morsley as second hand, since he simply refused to discuss his murders or be glorified for it, Dr. Bob Johnson had released some of this information that Robert revealed during the three years that he treated him, and his family revealed some more during the various documentaries and articles that had been written about Robert. But all the documentaries and articles that have been written about him seem to ask the same question. Does the story of Robert John Morsley deserve a happy ending or not? Let me tell you the story. And then you can decide for yourself. I'm definitely going to decide as well. Like, <laughs> sometimes I just like, and the audience will decide. And I'm like, that's going to be heavily influenced by my ranting about whether they're going to, you know, kill them or not. What makes a murderer? As Simon keeps reminding us, this channel is called The Casual Criminist for a reason. But in order for our viewers slash listeners to understand how Rob Morsley matches up to his peers, I'm going to have to give you a small crash course on the four different types of serial killers. There's actually a couple of reasons behind, I mean, the main reason behind The Casual Criminalist is just, I think it's a cool sounding name. The other reason is criminalist is a real job, and by throwing casual in front of there, I, I kind of felt like it's the same as armchair historian, but armchair criminalist doesn't really have the same vibe, which is, you know, I'm not really this thing. I'm just, you know, having a chill time pretending to be that person. Anyway, let's move on. That's the story of the name. A serial killer is defined as a person who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive and typically following a characteristic, predictable behavior pattern. From my reading, one of the points that's important to remember is that serial killers are usually indistinguishable from the people around them and are thus able to fulfill some role within society their husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, and neighbors. Yeah, almost always, almost every episode. It's not like there's some loner who's living out in the woods, like, uh, what's his face? Um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, living out there. They're the sort of that. The people who live out in the woods do Ted Kaczynski scar crimes. They, like, send bombs places, they blow people up. They don't just. They're not, like, hidden in society, secretly murdering people. Almost always. And we've done a lot of episodes now. For all you know, your high school English teacher might moonlight as a sadistic killer on the weekends. That's statistically incredibly unlikely. Uh, that charming professor at the community college might collect women's underwear as trophies of his kills. And the local butcher might be selling some speciality meat to his customers after he returns from his monthly hunting trips. Oh, my lord. <laughs> I really hope I haven't eaten human meat. Because that... It's kind of like turns your stomach a little bit, doesn't it? A little bit. A lot. Serial killers are often grouped into four categories. Visionary killers, the types who believe that God or some other entity is ordering them to kill people. Mission-orientated killers, who kill in order to rid society of certain groups of people, like sex workers and the homeless. Guys, if you're going to be a mission-orientated serial killer, do you really have to go after sex workers and the homeless? Like, be a mission-orientated serial killer. Go after other serial killers. Go after murderers and rapists and actual horrible people rather than, I mean, people who's just like, 
Yeah, well, you know where I'm going with this one. Hedonistic killers who simply kill for the pleasure of it, and power or control-orientated killers who often rape and torture their victims before they kill them. Robert John Morsley falls squarely within the category of a mission-oriented killer. He firmly believes that he was doing the world a favor, feels absolutely no guilt for what he's done, doesn't suffer from hallucinations or delusions, and he doesn't seem to get any gratification from killing. Okay, I think, like, the mission-orientated killers is the one that I understand the most, because, like, I don't know, if I killed someone, like, if some, like, not to, like, admit to my crimes, but I can imagine the situations where I'd be like, yeah, I'd be pretty happy to kill someone, like, if the need arose. <laughs> like, I'm, and I'm not, like, not, like, in some psycho way, but if someone kidnapped my family and were like, yo, you've got to go kill this person, are we going to kill your family? I'd be like, all right, where's my gun? Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that... Wait, now I'm wondering, like, what if that person's just an innocent person as well? But I don't know, they're my family. Like, there, I, I think it's just, like, in my mind, there's pretty much nothing I wouldn't do to defend them. And I think if I said otherwise, I'd probably be lying to myself. Um, or you guys, because here we are just expanding on my thoughts about whether I'll be willing to commit murder or not. I mean, all allegedly in Minecraft. Um, but, and then I think... W- you know, about the guilt and stuff, if I, I, you know, you've made that decision. Like, as a this mission-oriented kid, you'd be like, I'm going to kill that person. They deserve to die. And then afterwards, I don't think, like, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not surprised there's no guilt. I don't think I'd have any guilt because it's like, yeah, there was a bad person. I killed him. <laughs> it's what it is. Am I a psycho? <laughs> Just like other mission-oriented killers, Robert was motivated by feelings of revenge and hatred simply because, like so many of the other serial killers that we've covered so far, he had a horrible childhood. Um, uh, motivated by revenge and hatred? I don't know. I, I feel like some mission-oriented, a mission-oriented killers would just be motivated by the fact that I don't like this guy. I'm going to go take him out of the world. I, like, I don't like to think these people exist. But it's better than just regular serial killing who are just out there just killing people because they're sick. Sickos. Like, right? Right? I don't know. I feel like because there's no one else sitting here with me, there's no one to be like, Simon, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Um, So here we are. However, most mission-oriented killers won't stop their murder spree until they're either caught by law enforcement or killed. But what really distinguishes Robert John Maudsley from other serial killers is the fact that he didn't become a serial killer until after he went to prison. Little Bobby. Robert John Maudsley was born on the 26th of June, 1953, in Speak, a suburb of Liverpool. His father, George Maudsley, worked in one of the local coal mines, and his mother, Jean, was a housewife. The four eldest Maudsley children were close in age. Brenda was three, Paul was two, and Kevin was barely a year old when Robert was born. I think that anyone with kids will tell you that having babies that close together in age is hell. Three, two, and barely a year old. Yeah, my kids are... My kids aren't that close together, but they're they're not two years apart. They're like one and three quarters apart. And that is quite close. And any closer than that would be even harder than it is. And now, like, kid number one is nearly three, and kid number one is one and a bit. And now the three-year-old is actually, like, slightly helpful. But when kid number two was born, kid number one was just, like, not helpful at all. So I can see like a bigger gap being useful but also i don't know i just wanted to the other uh, advantage of having the kids closer together is just like you, you know you, 
it's done faster, which sounds terrible because I love seeing my kids grow up. But it's also like, you know, I look forward to nine months to change their nappies and stuff like that because that's not so fun. And it's no wonder their mother simply couldn't cope, drawing the attention of neighbours who would often hear her screaming and cursing at them. When Robert was six months old, social services arrived on the doorstep of the Maudsley house, and all four of the Maudsley children were placed into care due to neglect. They were placed at Nazareth House in Crosby, another suburb in Liverpool, just 33 kilometres or 20 miles away from where their parents lived. But the difference in their upbringing from then on was as stark as the difference between heaven and hell. Wait, so it was really bad, and then this is going to be good? Because normally, like, I don't know, I know we see just the worst side of this on The Casual Criminalist, because often it's the making of a killer, but normally it's like, and then they went to foster care where they were thoroughly abused, and you're like, oh, come on. But then I'm most of the time, I'm sure that goes, I mean, obviously it's a hard situation to begin with, but most foster parents aren't like, getting into foster parenting because they love abusing children. The vast majority, of course, getting into it because they're really good people who, like, I I don't know, as a parent, the idea, it's such a, I don't know, I find it such a noble thing to do, to be like, I'm going to take care of someone else's kid because they need to be taken care of. I'd find it such a hard thing to do that I have a huge amount of admiration for people who do that. According to Paul Morsley, Nazareth House was run by nuns. It was a brilliant place, and we all went to school up the road in Little Crosby. We were happy. We spent nine years there, and we're a real family unit. We looked upon the nuns as our parents. Our real parents never came to, came to see us until towards the end of those nine years. We didn't know them. I have no memories of them before we were at the orphanage. Based on the later interviews that Dr. Johnson had with a grown-up Robert, he would develop a strong sense of right and wrong during his time at the orphanage, and he has very strong views regarding what keeps a person's soul pure enough for you to be able to go to heaven, indicating that at least to some degree he is religious or at least has some kind of moral code. Yeah, no, going to heaven is like, that's a religious thing. Um, also, he seems to be also, what was that one? The, uh, oh god, the first type of killer who believes like they're having some message from God or whatever. This seems like a mission killer combined with a little splashing of that. The three Mortley boys referred to themselves as the three musketeers, and they would often pretend that they were saving someone from the evil Cardinal Richelieu. Is that the correct pronunciation of this? I have read the three musketeers back in, it's a very long time ago, right? (laughs) Actually, thinking about it, isn't the... Is The Three Musketeers one of those books? And I get the feeling it might be, because The Count of Monte Cristo is the same, where it's like there's a children's version that is incredibly simplified, and it was actually some super complicated French book. Like, I tried reading them out of Count of Monte Cristo. And it's one of those books that is just... It's very long, the text is very small, and it's using very arcane language, and it's like reading that book is... And I've been told it's a very good book. Someone gave it to me as a gift. And... It's just so hard to read. It's so hard. And I have such a small brain. I don't find reading complicated things relaxing. And reading is what I do to relax. So it's possible I haven't read The Three Musketeers, but I've read the like 12-page children's version, but I'm familiar with that Cardinal Richelieu character. For all intents and purposes, they were the only family they had, and for all they knew, they were orphans. But that all ended in 1962, when the embodiment of every orphan's dream came to Nazareth House. A family was willing to adopt Paul, and there was a good chance that the other three Maudsley children might be able to follow soon after. If your uh, orphanage is so awesome, do you really want to go to a family? That sounds kind of fun. 
Like you're just hanging out with other kids. Everything's great. You go to school. Self-described as being amazing. I'd be like, I don't want to go live with some family. This is sick. I just get to hang out with other kids. This sounds awesome. But seeing, I guess, there's the other thing. People need, like, the love of a parent, I suppose. So I guess as an adult, I'm, like, you know, less reliant on my parents' love. (laughs) Like, (laughs) not, you know. Um, But as a kid, I guess that would be quite important. I remember, you know more you know i'm attached to my parents i love my parents but it's obviously not that same attachment you have when you're a kid but seeing as how the Morsley children hadn't officially been surrendered by their parents the orphanage had to contact george and jean and ask them whether they were willing to put their children up for adoption the elder Morsleys, who'd already had a fifth child at this point refused and insisted they wanted their children back and the Morsley children were told that in fact they weren't orphans they still had a family albeit one that hadn't bothered to come and visit them and as you can imagine none of the Morsley kids wanted to leave crosby to go and live with the parents they didn't know as paul puts it it was a strange situation to go from Nazareth house to sitting on a couch in a house with parents who didn't talk to us. Jean and George Bordsley were nothing like the nuns that the nine-year-old Robert had grown up with. Hard and unforgiving, they had no issue with beating their children, and according to Paul, Amar instigated half of it. If we went to the shops instead of coming straight home after school, she would bring it to Dad's attention, and he would beat us. Yeah, this sucks. It's like that 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 movie thing, right? Where it's like the children at the orphanage and they they dream every day that their parents aren't dead and they come back and rescue them and these kids have that and they're like yes and now it's just beatings that sucks they were dirt poor and the five Bordsley children had to sleep on the floor with their extra clothes acting as blankets with george being the only breadwinner and his salary being meager at best there wasn't enough money to feed and clothe their growing family and the eldest Bordsley kids would often be sent out to go and steal what they could Whenever the police caught them and escorted them home, George would punish them for getting caught, beating them severely. All three of the boys were beaten on a regular basis, but it was as if Robert was the main target of their father's abuse, both physically and sexually. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, you know, it's just like the classic, yeah, he's beating them, he's beating them, it's bad time. And then it's just, oh, and there was also sexual abuse. Oh, of course there was. Some sources in that Robert took more abuse because he was trying to protect his older siblings. But Emma Kenny, the family counsellor who discussed Robert Maudsley's case on the documentary Robert Maudsley Caged Misery, explains that it is often the youngest or weakest child that is picked on the most. Rob would later tell Dr. Johnson that he remembers being locked up in a broom cupboard as punishment for almost six months. My father only opened the door to come in and beat me four or six times a day. He used to hit me with sticks or rods, and he once bust a twenty-two air rifle over my back. Oh my god. What the f***, people? Don't f*** your kids, we've talked about it before. It must have seemed like his prayers were answered when another social worker showed up on their doorstep barely a year after the Maudsley children had returned to live with their parents. Rob was the first to be taken away and placed into foster care. At one point, George Maudsley told the rest of his children that Robert had died and their home life would go from bad to worse as more babies were born. George and Jean would end up having 12 children in total. Don't do that. Just don't do that. 12 is too many. Look, don't... Even if you're Elon Musk, especially if you're Elon Musk, you're already busy. Why are you having so many kids? It's not going to be a good recipe for success for the kids. Sure, you've got the resources for it, but it's just not good. And if you don't, I mean, I don't want to say that only rich people can have lots of kids. I'm saying don't have lots of kids if you're rich, too. And also, but uh, now I'm just sounding like uh, digging myself a hole. But it's also, it's obviously harder if you're poor. 
I'll let Simon fume about the absolute selfishness of this, but I'll add that the NHS only made contraceptives widely available in 1971. Yeah, which is insane. But also, people forget that there has been a very, very successful contraceptive method throughout history. And no, I'm not talking about some silphium drug that the Romans were using, or was it silphium? They had some weird drug that they literally made extinct because it was so effective and they loved having sex, the Romans. Um, the withdrawal method. <laughs> Like, this is has existed forever. Is I'm not sure, but it's... Uh, don't take this as any sort of advice, and please, for the love of God, Google it. And also, obviously, it doesn't protect you against sexually transmitted diseases or anything like that. But performed properly, or so hard, the, then is... Uh, it's, like, almost as effective as uh, condoms or something. So, to say, like, there's been no effective contraception or uh, way of protecting against having kids is just nonsense. Robert Holbert's older siblings would eventually run away from home when they were between 16 and 18 years old, scattering all over the UK. According to Paul Maudsley, the eldest Maudsley children did well for themselves and started their own families, while the youngest children ended up in foster care. But the same could not be said of Robert. After he was placed into foster care, the 10-year-old Robert only ended up in one abusive home after another, and at the age of 16, he ran away and headed to London. According to Graham Guilford, a journalist that was interviewed for the documentary, mentioned previously, Robert Maudsley Caged Misery, London was where all of Britain's lost children fled to. It was the bright lights, the promise of a new start and opportunity. But what they found, and what Robert found, was a place of incredible hardship. A place that was bedeviled with rice. It makes sense, though. Like, if you're a homeless kid, you I get why, you know, homeless people conjugate, conjugate, go to, live in, whatever in cities because it's like there's more people there's i don't know that would make sense that's what i would do although so i'd be like go live it yeah but then it's like okay well why not just go like pitch a tent somewhere and do this because you need food and money and and there's more like opportunity for that in a city right the 16-year-old Robert hadn't had contact with his older siblings for years, and since they were under the impression that he was dead, they didn't go looking for him, or once they had managed to free themselves from their parents. This meant that he was broke and alone and didn't have any kind of support system when he finally reached London and tried to make a life for himself. Robert ended up addicted to drugs, and because of this, it wasn't able to hold a job. Eventually, he would start working as a rent boy, aka a sex worker, in order to survive and pay for his drug habits. And it was while he was working London streets that he would suffer at the hands of his clients being tortured and beaten and sexually abused on a regular basis. He tried to take his life twice during this time and spend some time in psychiatric units in hospital. Here, he would tell the hospital staff that he was hearing voices and they told him to kill his parents. He believed that if he killed his parents, he would finally be free of the memory of the torture that they'd put him through, as well as the hatred he felt toward them. He needed help, and he knew it. But as soon as he was healed up, hospital would release him and send him back to the streets of London. But when Robert Maudsley first met John Farrell, his time in London slowly started running out, and it would change the course of his life forever. Bloom. Today, Wood Green is a metropolitan centre in Greater London, and there are a number of cinemas, bars, nightclubs, restaurants, and cafes in the area. I don't know Wood Green. I've never heard of it. It's in, I, London's so huge. I lived in London for a year, and it's like just, there's a whole metropolitan centre with all of this stuff that I've never heard of. 
In the 1970s, some of the shops had been a part of the Golden Mall of North London, which had been demolished and the Wood Green Shopping City was being built. Wood Green would have been an ant's nest of construction workers and day laborers, and most of Robert's clients knew exactly where to find him. He would often hang around in the local bars, chatting up the patrons, and since the Sexual Offences Act had decriminalized homosexuality between men in 1967, they were free to approach the 21-year-old Robert and arrange for him to accompany them somewhere else for a night of mutual pleasure. On the 14th of March 1974, Robert was lounging around at a bar in Wood Green when one of his regulars, the 30-year-old John Farrell, walked up to Robert and invited him back to his apartment. John worked in construction, and he and Robert would meet up regularly with some sources claiming that the two were in a relationship. Now, there are different versions of what happens after the two men left the bar that night. This is mostly because Robert never expanded on what happens between him and John Farrell, and it would be another 20 years before journalists tried to piece the story together. So, I'm going to go with a version that is more likely based on what I've learned during my research. Robert and Farrell ended up going to Farrell's apartment that night, as was their habit, and the two men would indulge in their favorite drug of the moment. They ended up lounging on the bed, smoke drifting in the air around them, the curtains drawn to the world outside. Wait, what was the favorite drug of the moment? Was it the 1970s? It's got to be weed, right? They were comfortable around each other, but Robert wasn't the most adventurous bed partner between the two of them, seeing it as more of his job than anything else. But that night, Farrell proposed they try something new, and he left Robert on the bed while he made his way to the dresser. From the back of the top drawer, Farrell pulled out a stack of Polaroids and made his way back to Robert, who looked on in a drug daze. Farrell turned on the bedside lamp and sat down next to Robert, proudly handing in the stack of photos. Oh my god, what is in these photos? <laughs> I'm like, ah. They're his, Farrell would explain as Robert studied one photo after the other. His boys. He always took photos of them, like to remind himself of the good times. Oh my. What does he mean by boys? What does he mean by boys? Does he mean like, they're my boys? Like, what's it called when he doesn't mean it literally? Or does he mean it literally? There's only one way to find out. Robert flicked through photo after photo, the days lifting as he realized that these boys were young. Oh my. Very young. Oh no. Much younger than the 30-year-old Farrell. And it dawns on him that Farrell was a paedophile. An icy rage built up inside of Robert. Robert John Maudsley strangled John Farrell with the cord of his bedside lamp, killing him. He then bludgeoned him before stabbing him repeatedly with a knife. Half naked and covered in blood, Robert stared down at Farrell's body and realized what he'd done. You can guess what happened next. He cleaned himself up, got dressed, got rid of the knife, and left the apartment. But you'd actually be wrong. Robert Maudsley didn't clean himself up. Dressed only in his pants, his chest, arms, and hands covered in blood, he left John Farrell's apartment, calmly made his way to the nearest police station, and walked inside, met the shocked gazes of officers on duty, and declared, I just killed a paedophile. I need help. <clears throat> wow, that's super intense. Still half-naked and covered in blood, he'd wait in an interrogation room while officers were sent to John Farrell's apartment to confirm that Farrell was indeed dead. They found his body exactly where Robert said it would be, the Polaroid photos scattered on the mattress below him. John Farrell was blue in the face, the cord of the bedside lamp still tied around his neck, his head a bloody mess, his body covered in stab wounds. Robert confessed to the murder of John Farrell and earned the nickname Blue from the police officers who went to investigate Farrell's flat. Robert was sentenced with manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, and because of this he was sent to Broadmoor, a high-security psychiatric hospital, where he would stay for the duration of his sentence and hopefully finally receive the help he needed. Wait, so is this the only... Cr oh, did they say how much he got? Manslaughter, diminished responsibility, a few years, for sure. 
wait has he been sent to prison and this is where he stays and he just becomes a murderer in prison is this the is this the end of like his freedom the elements as dr watson said to sherlock are coming together sir that's intense we're only halfway through the episode though so there's i don't know let's let's carry on spoons Dr. Bob Johnson would laugh if he heard anyone referring to Broadmoor as a hospital, since according to him, a hospital is somewhere you go to get medical treatment, and Broadmoor didn't seem to help any of its patients. Even though Broadmoor isn't officially a prison, it sure does look like one, and many of its patients are sent there after they've committed some sort of crime, making the hospital notorious. Okay, so he's got... he's not been sentenced to a prison sentence, he's just been sent to Broadmoor, which means it's kind of can be indefinite. We've discussed this before, and it's why insanity is not such a common defense because if you if they say yeah you're insane so you're not guilty of murder and you're like and so what's my sentence it's like oh indefinite detention in a psychiatric hospital until you're better which could be never which is like unappealing wikipedia has a list of all the infamous patients that have called broadmoor home at some point in history some of them are assassins murderers and serial killers that you might be familiar with either from this channel or similar true crime shows people like the devil's daughter sharon carr june and jennifer gibbons aka the silent twins david gonzalez robert napper charles bronson peter sutcliffe who is also better known as the yorkshire ripper and this just reminds me oh my god we've got a lot more to cover on this channel <laughs> some of my channels i'm like oh Sometimes I'm just not feeling super inspired and coming up with topics is really hard. With casual criminalists, it's just like there's an endless, endless supply of horrible pieces of to look at. During his stay at Broadmoor, Robert had a certain degree of freedom. He wasn't considered dangerous, and he was allowed to walk around the hospital, spending time in the activity rooms, either reading, listening to music, or watching movies, and attending therapy. According to the hospital staff, he mostly kept to himself, but as time went on, Robert got to know his fellow patients a lot better, and he soon realized that Broadmoor was filled with monsters who were worse than John Farrell had been. Because Robert had never elaborated on or boasted about his crimes, another unusual trait that differentiates him from other serial killers, we still can't be sure why he targeted 26-year-old David Francis, a fellow inmate and convicted child molester. <laughs> we still can't be sure. He's in Broadmoor because he murdered a paedophile. Maybe he killed old Dave there because he's a child molester. <laughs> What we do know is that Robert didn't act alone. He prevented the 32-year-old David Lance, another inmate who had been sentenced to Broadmoor for sexually assaulting a 16-year-old girl, and together the two planned on how they were going to kill David Francis. Wait, so David Lance is also, like, abusing an underage person. Um, but I guess that's, you know... I don't want to draw, like, a scale of how bad people are... But uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that old David Francis was uh, his victims were a little bit younger than 16. Robert and David stole plastic spoons from the cafeteria and worked to sharpen the spoons into knives, hiding it on their bodies as they waited for an opportunity to get David alone. On the 26th of February 1977, the hospital staff had arranged for the inmates to play a friendly soccer match on one of the hospital lawns. <laughs> I guess that's going to turn out to be not so friendly. They're going to get a red card. Which Americans is where you get sent off, like you've been naughty on the field, and they're like, get out of here, red card. That's about all I know about football. I learned more about football from watching Ted Lasso than uh, my entire experience being forced to play football as a kid, because I just wouldn't pay attention. And it was like, what role should we put Simon in? Defender. Defender, because it's the position where you have to do the least. 
And uh, I was totally fine with that. I hated playing team sports. Hated that shit. It's always cold. You'd have to go out there and be like, you've got to wear shorts. You'd be like, it's minus six, you maniacs. Why? Why do, why do schools force us to play sports? I would have literally rather, I would have rather just sat at a desk and wrote lines than play sports. And some people love it though. I just hated it. I liked indoor sports, like squash. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. The two men grabbed the opportunity that had fallen into their laps. As the rest of the patients were making their way back to the building later that morning, they either captured or lured Francis into an empty cell. The hospital staff, distracted by the rest of the patients, only realized that something was wrong when they heard screams echoing down one of the hallways. The hospital staff peeked around, peeked through the small glass window of the barricaded cell and realized that Robert and David had managed to tie Francis up using a power cord that they'd stolen from a record player. They ended up torturing Francis for a solid nine hours. What the f***? man this escalated bro last time there was a there was a pedophile and you murdered him quickly and then went to the police station to confess there was no torture don't be torturing him just kill him or don't no one knows why the staff didn't intervene or call the police or attempt to break down the door but one of the nurses would later say the hospital staff had to bear the screams of francis as he was tortured for hours they abused his body the nth degree that what I assumed immediately there was a, they said it was like a barricaded door or like with the stern, the hospital staff, glass window of a barricaded cell. I just assumed that they couldn't get in. Like it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, they just barricaded it. They shut the door so the staff couldn't get in, but they didn't even try. They didn't call the police. <laughs> Jesus. Wait, there's no proper guards? It's Broadmoor. I've heard of it being intense. Where's the security guards? Allegedly, they heard Francis ask the two men why they didn't just kill him and get, in over, get it over with right before Robert stabbed him in the ear with one of the broken spoons, killing him. The two men then held Francis's body up to the glass window to show the hospital staff what they'd done before opening the door to let them in. The staff would later explain that Francis's head had been cracked open like a boiled egg. Oh my god. Also, it's a cell in a mental institution. Why can it be locked from the inside? That's where the patient is. It seems like it should just be lockable from the outside. He had also been cut all over his body and had been partially skinned. F***ing hell, guys. This got super intense. The staff and the media kept repeating the fact that a gore-covered spoon had been seen sticking out of Francis's ear, and the rumor soon spread that Robert Maudsley had eaten Francis's brains, earning him a spot on the front page of various newspapers. An autopsy disproved this rumor, but Robert still got the nickname Hannibal the Cannibal, along with the nickname Spoons. <laughs> so, which it's like Spoons could be the nickname of like a kid. What's in a Spoons? How'd you get that? I like Spoons. It's like the other nickname, Hannibal the Cannibal. You've been up to some. <laughs> The two men seemed to have different reasons for why they'd targeted David Francis. One of the explanations provided was that Francis had allegedly attacked one of their friends for being gay. Another was the fact that he'd been a convicted child molester, a fact that immediately made him worth killing in Robert's book. Either way, Robert Maudsley and David Land both pled guilty to the murder of David Francis, and both of them received life sentences. David Land was sent to Hollersley Bay Prison in Suffolk in order to serve his time, and Robert ended up being sent to Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. A fox in the chicken coop. Oh god, he's gonna go in there, he's gonna tear this sh up. Wakefield Prison is a Category A men's prison. I believe Category A is like the uh, the highest. That would make sense, because he's 
uh, he's called Hannibal the Cannibal, meaning that it's one of the most secure prisons in the UK. It's also known as the UK's Monster Mansion, and the majority of UK serial killers end up there, including Charles Salvador and Harold Shipman. Simon, you actually did a video on it for your Geographics channel, Wait for Prison, the UK's Monster Mansion, and it even featured a short insert on Robert Maudsley. Oh my god, I don't remember that at all! As <laughs> I was vaguely familiar with Monster Mansion, but that's all I remember. Robert Maudsley hated Wakefield Prison. Broadmoor had allowed him a lot more freedom. He could see a psychiatrist, read books, and listen to music. Now he was under guard 24-7, and he was put into an open ward where he was surrounded by the worst criminals that the UK had to offer, including child molesters and sex offenders. Well, honestly, mate, that's what happens when you murder someone, by sticking a spoon in their ear, into their brains, where you're already at Broadmoor. That's what's going to happen to you. You're going to go to big boy prison. Allegedly, he petitioned the p prison authorities on multiple occasions to send him back to Broadmoor, but his requests were denied. He also allegedly asked to be placed in solitary instead, since he didn't want to be surrounded by the kind of people that he despised. Mate, I've got some news for you. While you're not a child molester or anything like that, you are a murderer. And a lot of those guys that's a Category A prison are going to be murderers. You are one of them. Those requests were also denied. For almost a year, Robert watched and listened as he wandered the open areas between the cells, and in the end, he had a list of seven people he decided deserved to die. And when he awoke on the 29th of July 1978, he stuck a homemade knife, aka a ship, and a piece of rope that had smuggled out of the workshop into his belt, and he went on a hunt. Oh my god. And I get the feeling that the people he kills are going to be the absolute worst of the worst in a Category A prison, which is going to be some real pieces of so this is probably going to be like, you know, not your typical murder spree where you're like, oh my god, he's murdering some innocent people, but he's, he's murdering some real horrible people, you can be sure of it. His first victim was Salney Darwood, a 46-year-old man who was serving a life sentence for murdering his wife, Blanche. Darwood doesn't necessarily match Robert's usual victim profile, but Darwood had been giving Robert French lessons, and the two had gotten to know one another well. It had been speculated that he'd confided something to Robert during one of these lessons that triggered Robert unaware that had just painted a big fat target on his back. Oh my! You could bet that that guy was up to some sh that was worse than murdering his wife. A Robert somehow convinced Darwood to escort him to his cell. Darwood followed him, and once they reached Robert's cell, Robert garroted Darwood with the rope and then stabbed him repeatedly with a serrated blade. Once he was sure that Darwood was dead, Robert shoved his body underneath the bed and went looking for victim number two. <laughs> Dude, this is so intense. He's gonna get away with multiple murders in a prison just that's inc i mean I don't, it sounds like i'm impressed and in a way i am but not in like oh like oh my god prison get your together according to his fellow prisons robert then stalked down the walkways and started calling out names inviting his fellow prisoners to come and pay him a visit wisely they refused and some made sure to stay out of his way avoiding him for most of the day at a time robert stalked into the cell of 56 year old william roberts who was serving seven years for the sexual assault of a seven-year-old girl William was lying on his bed, and he could only watch as Robert stalked towards him with a smile on his face, trapping him. Without a word, Robert grabbed a hold of William's shoulder and started stabbing him repeatedly before mutilating William's face. Once William was dead, Robert turned around and calmly made his way toward the prison officer's room. There, he placed the bloodied makeshift knife on the desk and told the officer that the next roll call will be too short. Hell, mate. That is intense. It's like some movie. 
Once again, Robert John Maudsley went on trial for murder. He explained that his parents were ultimately to blame for his actions, that it was his anger at how they treated him that drove him to kill child molesters. He also claimed that he saw his father's face whenever he attacked one of his victims. It later explained that, If I had killed my parents in 1917, none of these people need have died. If I had killed them, then I would be walking around as a free man without a care in the world. Except you'd have still killed two people, and it's possible, them being your parents, that the police might have considered you as a potential suspect. And then you'll have just been in prison for even longer. <laughs> Which, of course, is completely delusional, but okay. I'm glad Emma agrees with me on that one. However, the Home Secretary eventually announced that Robert John Maudsley was too dangerous to release or keep around other prisoners, and he would spend the rest of his life in solitary confinement. That's going to be so intense. The Problem with Robert John Maudsley at the age of 69, Robert John Maudsley is infamous for the fact that he has spent the last 48 years in prison, 44 of which have been in solitary confinement, making him one of the UK's longest-serving prisoners. In 1983, a cell was built specifically for Robert in the basement of Wakefield Prison, and it's thought that this cell was the inspiration for Hannibal Lecter's prison in the movie. I get the feeling that I knew this. And I made those comments at the beginning about the glass box because I'm remembering stuff, like, subconsciously from my Wakefield Prison video. Apparently. Known simply as the cage, it consists of two rooms and is 5.5 meters by 4.5 meters, that's 18 by 15 feet. It has large bulletproof windows through which his guards can watch him since he's a suicide risk. His only furniture is a chair and table that's made out of compressed cardboard, and his bed is a concrete slab. His toilet and wash basin are bolted to the floor, and the second cell can be reached through a solid steel door. He spends 23 hours a day in his cell, and when he is allowed to step outside for his hour's worth of exercise, he's escorted through the 17 doors that separate him from the outside world by six guards. Oh my lord. He compares his solitary confinement to the times when his dad locked him up in a room on his own, saying, there are so many similarities in terms of being placed in strong boxes with cages. It's so much like a room, so much like a cupboard, you know? And don't forget, there are times when they strip me naked, just like my father used to strip me naked. There's so many similarities in terms of the prison guards shoving food underneath my door, and my dad just throwing it on the floor. In 1991, Robert had spent some time on the Isle of Wight at Parkhurst Prison, and there he met Dr. Bob Johnson, the psychiatrist who would interview him and counsel him for almost three years. Dr. Johnson would explain how Robert was barely able to string sentences together when they first met, but a few weeks later, Robert would explain that it started to put the pieces of myself back together. But then his treatment was ended abruptly, and he was left to stagnate further. According to Robert, the British justice system sees him as a problem they can't solve, and as such, he is, to quote, left to stagnate, vegetate, and to regress. Left to confront my solitary head-on with people who have eyes but don't see, and who have ears but don't hear, who have mouths but don't speak. In March 2000, Robert wrote to the Times asking the authorities to provide him with a television, classical music tapes, pictures, and a pet bird. He also said that if the prison service says no, then I ask for a simple cyanide capsule which I shall willingly take, and the problem of Robert John Maudsley can easily and swiftly be resolved. What's the problem with giving him a TV? I mean, I don't... This is... He is by far... By far not the worst person that we've ever covered on Casual Criminalist, and yet he's living like he's the f***ing Unabomber, or a terrorist, or one of those other guys at, um, oh, what's that giant Supermax, um, AD, ADX, ADX something? The, the one where, like, there's the, the, the prisoners who are there forever in their, in their cages, like, 24 hours a day, 23 hours a day. 
Why not give him a TV and a little bird? What's the problem? He's kind of just murdered bad guys. And then he's gone and been like, I murdered some bad dudes. Pretty much every time. He's just goes like, there's two people who are dead. I murdered a pedophile. Why not? I get that he's dangerous, but he's only dangerous to bad dudes. The problem is it just happens that prison where he needs to be is where all the bad dudes are. I don't understand what's wrong with giving him a TV. Give this guy a f- TV. Who needs to give this- what, Like, if anyone watching this knows how to get this guy a TV, or get them to listen, we should get this guy a TV. <laughs> Come on, Times. Why could you not do it? You're a big- Come on. Take up the John Maudsley TV cause, Times. It was denied, and later requests that he should be allowed to play board games with his guards were also denied. His guards are also not allowed to speak to him. He is- This is insane. I'm sorry, but this is- This is morally not right. This guy- I don't care that he's a murderer. I don't- It's not right to treat someone this way. I have more of a problem with this, because I think, um, how the Americans put it, cruel and unusual punishment, right? That's in your, like, um, constitution about this Like, you can't make it cruel and unusual. And this is cruel and unusual. I get that the UK doesn't have that, but there's- We have, like, human rights laws and and this is not fair. This is not okay. He's only allowed three visitors, his his two older brothers, Kevin and Paul, and Paul's son, Gavin. From what Gavin has shared during multiple documentaries about his serial killer uncle, the two of them write letters to each other, and it sounds as if Robert Maudsley does have some access to the outside world since the two of them compare notes on movies and books, and Gavin updates his uncle on the world of Formula One racing. What? So, I... So, how does he see this stuff, then? But like I said earlier on, every documentary that has been made about Robert Maudsley ends up asking the same question. Does the story of Robert John Maudsley deserve a happy ending or not? Does this man who, according to himself and his family, only became a serial killer because of his past, and then only once he'd already been imprisoned, deserve to die all alone in a glass cage? No, he doesn't. I don't th- it doesn't deserve a happy ending. He deserves to be imprisoned. He's a multiple murderer. But does he deserve this unusual punishment? F- no. F- you, justice system, or prison system. According to Emma Kenny, the family counsellor who discussed Robert Maudsley's case on the documentary Robert Maudsley Cage Misery, it isn't unusual for Robert's family and the public to sympathise with him. After all, Robert Maudsley was suggested as a topic for this channel after Simon ranted about how Dexter killers are never the vigilante types who go after other serial killers. There we go. In my opinion, Robert Maudsley also can't be labelled as a Dexter killer since he didn't kill out of a sense of vigilante justice, but rather hatred and revenge. Emma Kenny explains it perfectly when she says that Robert Maudsley feels justified in what he did. He sees paedophiles as vermin, and he feels that it is appropriate to extinguish them. And, and whether we like to acknowledge it or not, that is not an uncommon belief system in the UK. There will be many who feel that he was justified in his actions. But we always have to be aware that taking somebody's life is the most grave thing that anyone can do. It's the worst behavior of a human being. Agreed. I mean, I don't think he should have killed those people. I think they're where they need to be, in a miserable Category A prison. Um, But does this guy deserve this unusual punishment for this? Absolutely not. Good lord. It is worth mentioning that just because Robert Maudsley claimed to only be a danger to child molesters and paedophiles, it suddenly doesn't make him a better kind of serial killer. Yes, his childhood trauma might have turned him into a killer, but the same can be said of almost every killer that we've covered on Casual Criminalists so far. But we've also rarely had someone who's just... who's killed only... what? Three? Was it three people? He's only killed three people. They were all child molesters, paedophiles. Um... At least, that's what we can assume. One of them we don't know. The, the guy was teaching him French or something, right? Wasn't he teaching him something? There was something with that. 
we can assume that something was going down there. Um, yeah, the, I don't think we've ever covered someone with quite this situation. But it's also worth mentioning that not every victim of childhood abuse becomes a serial killer. Robin Wardsley had 11 siblings in total, and despite the fact that they all suffered far longer at the hands of their father, they didn't turn into serial killers. No matter what his motivations were, Robert John Wardsley still made his own bed, however hard it might be. Yeah, no, he didn't though, did he? He made his own bed. He accepted, yeah, I'm going to be in prison. Yeah, I'm going to be in solitary. But in a glass box with nothing to do until you die? I don't think he made that bed. John Farrell's murder wasn't premeditated, but every murder after that, the weapons and the methods were decided out in advance. Every victim had carefully selected their fate sealed the moment they made Robert Maudsley's list. And that doesn't make him less of a killer simply because he's only a danger to paedophiles. So does Robert John Maudsley deserve to die alone in a glass cage, or should he be allowed to live out the rest of his years in peace simply because society had failed him? And if he's, I don't think it's because society failed him. Even if this guy hadn't been failed by society, I think he's being failed by the prison system right now, and I don't think that's fair. Enough ranting about this, I won't bring it up again. And if you say yes, you can also say the same about any of the other serial killers whose society has also failed. I think not. Dismembered Appendices As I mentioned before, there isn't a lot of information available on Robert Maudsley, but I was able to scrape together a few interesting tidbits. Number one, even though some of the sources that I found called Robert Maudsley the inspiration for Hannibal Lecter, that simply isn't true. Thomas Harris, the American author who created the character for his books, has said that he was inspired by multiple people, including a prison physician called Alfredo Bali Trevino. According to Wikipedia, he was suspected of killing and dismembering several hitchhikers in the Mexican countryside during the late 1950s and early 1960s, before being caught for the murder of his friend and lover, Jesus Castillo Rangel. Yeah, also, maybe his cage, the cage in the prison? Yes, but obviously this is different to Hannibal Lecter. Number two, according to Paul Morsley, Robert's eldest brother, they'd only realized that Robert was still alive when the newspapers reported on the murder of David Francis, prompting the brothers to seek him out. Number three, Gavin Maudsley has claimed that he only realized who his uncle Bobby was when Robert Maudsley appeared in a documentary about life in solitary confinement, and his school friends pointed out the similarities in their looks and surname. Before that, he was just a weird uncle who he and his father would visit in prison. Number four, despite the fact that almost all of the articles about Robert Maudsley claim that claims that he wants to be freed from his solitary confinement, he'd allegedly claimed on more than one occasion that he prefers solitary confinement above mixing with the other prisoners. However, he's also made a point of informing prison authorities that if he ever was released, he would continue to kill child molesters and paedophiles. Number five, it turns out that Robert Maudsley isn't the snowflake that many think he is. More than one of the documentaries that I've watched while researching Robert Maudsley pointed out that it isn't unusual for child molesters or pedophiles to be targeted or killed in prison. According to a 2015 article by Michael St. James, prison is often a living hell for pedophiles. They're easy targets because the other prisoners turn on them once it becomes clear why they're in prison, and killing them earns their murderers respect in the prison's hierarchy. As such, Robert Maudsley isn't the only person who's become a serial killer in prison by targeting child molesters. He just simply had a better PR team. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, from movies, it's always like the pedophiles get to have a bad time in prison and also cops who end up going to prison that, or prison guards. Oh my God, what's that? Was it in Prison Break where the warden ends up in prison and it's like, oh, and he was a d- and he ends up in the same prison, which I'm sure is just utterly unrealistic. But it was like, oh boy, you're gonna have a bad time. <laughs> This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you for watching. Like, subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening to this in its podcast form, please do leave a review. It's very much appreciated. And I'll see you next time. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.